four, three, two, one. Welcome everybody to my podcast, Mars Messina Presents. I am your hostess, Mars Messina. So I'm going to do a little preamble before I get on to my topic today. And that preamble is about technology. So obviously this is my third podcast, so I don't have state-of-the-art equipment yet. I have a pretty good mic. I have a nice condenser cardioid mic, but I'm not soundproofed or anything like that. And it's impossible really to get rid of extraneous ambient noise. You can cover it up a bit, but you can't really get rid of it. And um, I chose early Saturday morning to do my recording because it's quiet. However, of course, because I'm recording, there's been sirens, there's been airplanes, dogs barking, and hot rods going down my street already. And it's not even 7 a.m., But of course, that's because I'm recording. So I'm telling you this um, so that you can be patient with me until I get up to speed with state-of-the-art equipment, which I hope happens soon, but it's not yet. So bear with any extraneous noise. So anyway, um, on to today's topic, which is social commentary. So I was asking a couple friends, I'm like, what do you, you know, give me some ideas of what you would like to hear for future episodes. And one of my friends said to me, he said, I would love your soul on social commentary. So he's a good guy. I'm going to oblige him. And when I got ready to record, I was like, wait, what did he mean? Did he mean what I think social commentary is, or does he want my personal social commentary? So I've decided to mix both, and I will provide both on today's episode. So to give you a dictionary definition of social commentary, it is the act of using rhetorical means to provide commentary on issues in a society. This is often done with the idea of implementing or promoting change by informing the general general populace about a given problem and appealing to people's sense of justice. So <clears throat> I'm going to list here a an example or examples of social commentary, which include but are not limited to photography, for example. So I don't know if you're familiar with Dorothea Lang. If you're not, look her up. She is a photographer for the Depression era. Black and white photos, stark, Appalachian, Dust Bowl kind of feel that images that really grab you. So I would recommend looking up Dorothea Lang, L-A-N-G, just like Jessica Lang. I don't think they're related. Although Jessica Lang is also a photographer, if you did not know that. She's a brilliant actress. I, I think we all know that. But she's uh, she's a pretty gifted photographer as well. So check them both out. And then in the art world, they, we could devote 
several podcasts to social commentary in the arts. Um, so I'm just, I'm just gonna mess. I'm just gonna mention one, and that is graffiti. So here in the United States, graffiti is hit or miss as far as effective social commentary. But if you go to Europe, you'll see you'll see some really beautiful pieces um, that you wouldn't even want painted over. They're, they're just so beautiful. And they pack a punch with their message. Public speaking, Martin Luther King Jr. and Cornell West are two very famous examples. And I'm going to be quoting both of those gentlemen in a few moments. Works of fiction, we see social commentary in literature. Animal Farm and To Kill a Mockingbird are two of the more famous and quotable works of fiction on social commentary. Nonfiction, pick up some books by Ralph Nader or Noam Chomsky. Now, these readings are not casual but they are incredibly informative, insightful, and they're right. And they can be a little scary in their truth. Film is resplendent and replete with social commentary. Look at Michael Moore's films or movies like Supersize Me and Food, Inc. Radio, we have NPR News Radio. Now, I know I'm listing some... Examples of more left-leaning artists, uh, but there certainly are right-leaning artists or commentators out there. Um, on TV, we can see South Park, which is hilarious. It's raunchy, but they also pack a punch with their statements. And All in the Family, this is a, a sitcom from the 1970s that I don't think it could be aired now. Well, actually it is aired, but on a, like those retro TV stations, but I don't think it would bode well with today's general audience because they, they leave no stone unturned. And um, especially the early episodes where Archie Bunker is living with his wife and his daughter and his son-in-law and the arguments these people get into is it's hilarious but it's it's pretty it's pretty hardcore sometimes too i check that out stand up comedians um, they're great examples of social commentary lenny bruce richard pryor and george carlin and i'm going to be quoting him also in a few moments talk show hosts and podcasts Lots of examples here, too. Intellectual dark web. Now, who makes up the intellectual dark web? You're looking at guys like Eric Weinstein, Brett Weinstein, Heather Hying. You're looking at Jimmy Dore, uh, Dan Crenshaw. You're looking at Joe Rogan. Um, oh, there's so many more. Um, I think I said Jordan Peterson, and I'm not sure. Anyway... A lot um, of people to listen to out there on uh, their social commentary. Dance. Yes, dance. Look at African diaspora dance for, 
for social commentary and music is filled with it. So in the modern era, we have punk rock like the Dead Kennedys or Patti Smith. We have rap, the music of the street. We have Woody Guthrie and Billie Holiday. After this, maybe take a listen to Strange Fruit. And uh, But you're going to cry after hearing it, so... Be in a certain place in a certain mood when you listen to Strange Fruit, sung by Billie Holiday and written by a white Jewish man who really felt for black Americans. So anyway, Martin Luther King Jr., who said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Beautiful words, poetic words, words that are timeless. There's few people who can disagree with that. In fact, it's resonant. People feel this. So that's why he's so beloved. That's why he's so revered today. But remember, at, at the time when he was living when he was active in his activism, he was one of the most hated men in America by, by definitely white people, but black people too. Now, when he says something like, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. Now, he's taking us all to the judgment seat on this one. A nation, he's talking to us. He's not just talking about the politicians or the Pentagon, even though he is addressing them for sure. But he's holding us all accountable because our tax dollars go to machines of death rather than programs that are life-affirming. And when we do that, we approach spiritual death. Now he's talking to religious and spiritual people. We think we're good. You know, we go to church or we we chant and we pray and we do kind things. But where does our tax tax dollars go? And why do we keep electing the people who keep using those funds for war? and for imprisonment. So we're all held accountable, and this is why people were uncomfortable with him. But he was holding a mirror up to society. So, um, talking a little bit about my take on what I see happening in my society, I'm going to give it a theme. I'm going to say the perfect is the enemy of the good. I'll say that again. The perfect is the enemy of the good. And the idea of achieving our own idea of utopia is dangerous. Now the Buddhists have a really wonderful saying. They say, if you see the Buddha walking down the road, kill him. Now what does that mean? It doesn't mean literally kill Buddha. But what it means is it kill, kill your idea of Buddha because now you have absolutism in your head and you think you know better. 
one could say that about Jesus. If you see Jesus down the road, kill him. And that's hard for a Christian to hear because he was killed. But we're talking about the idea we have of what Jesus is and what he means. And if we're convinced we're right, then you're wrong and I'm going to shut you down. This is what it means that if we have absolutism in our head, that, that causes war, that causes strife. You're going to be doing nothing but arguing. So um, Cornell West puts it a little bit better than I do. He said, to accept your country without betraying it, you must love it for that which shows what it might become. America, this monument to the genius of ordinary men and women, this place where hope becomes capacity, this long halting turn of no into yes, needs citizens who love it enough to reimagine and remake it. So that's, that's the core of humanity is that we can reimagine, we can remake, we can have creativity, and we can expand our hearts. We can't be perfect. We're always going to strive for perfection, but we're not going to get there. And it's in this struggle that we find more in common with each other than not. He went on to say, the country is in deep trouble. We've forgotten that a rich life consists fundamentally of serving others. Trying to leave the world a better place than you found it. We need the courage to question the powers that be, the courage to be impatient with evil and patient with people, the courage to fight for social justice. In many instances, we will be stepping out onto nothing and just hoping to land on something, but that's the struggle to live is to wrestle with despair yet never allow despair to have the last word. So he's talking about selflessness. He's talking about growing. And that's what makes for a good society where there's a little more equity. There's understanding and peace because we all know we're in it together. George Carlin says, political correctness is America's newest form of intolerance. And it is especially pernicious because it comes disguised as tolerance. It presents itself as fairness, yet attempts to restrict and control people's language with strict codes and rigid rules. I'm not sure that that's the way to fight discrimination. I'm not sure silencing people or forcing them to alter their speech is the best method for solving problems that go much deeper than speech. He could have said that today in today's society with our sit down and shut up judgmental spirit. So a couple of um, current problems that I see happening today is so, um, virtue signaling used as a weapon. Now, there's already people listening to this right now that don't like that I said that. Virtue signaling used as a weapon. So 
this Derek Chauvin case where he was convicted of the murder of George Floyd. This is um, one of these hotbed issues that is going on currently. When he was convicted, I saw on social media, it just erupted and people were cheering and saying, yes, justice is served. And then you had other people rebutting that saying, justice isn't served, accountability was served. Meaning, you know, this one person was being held accountable, but justice really hadn't happened. Now that's true, but it was said with such anger and judgment at the people who said justice is served. And I'm like, why are you fighting? Why are you fighting with this person who is also very happy that this rogue cop is is being held accountable? So they said justice is served. So yeah, it could be, you know, misspeaking or, you know, a slight misunderstanding, but it's not that big of a deal, but you're making it a huge deal. You can just say, well, actually, it's not really justice. It's, it's just one guy being held accountable. And then the person who, who originally said that this is justice served, they could be like, yeah, you're right. And that's what I meant. And then let it go. But no, you have to jump on people's words so that they can't even say anything anymore. Just bash them. And it's one thing to be arguing with somebody who doesn't agree with you. But now we're arguing with people who agree with us. And it's getting impossible to speak out. You end up silencing yourself because you don't want the headache. You don't want want to have to completely all the time explain every single word that you just said. I'm responsible for what I say, but I'm not responsible for how you interpret it. I'm going to put it that way. So, um, so these slogans are out there, you know, like the Chauvin conviction is not justice, it is accountability. And we see it on memes and we hear it in sound bites and we're bombarded with it every single day all the time. And it gets in your head and what people do is they use that and regurgitate it out and they use it to hurt someone else by saying, I'm right, you're wrong, sit down, shut up. And we're not going to advance. We're not going to progress if we keep speaking to each other this way. And I think that's the danger of today's media. Now, behind all media throughout time, you always had conspiring minds doing things in secret to advance certain ideas and to make the populace buy into them, almost like hypnotized little robots. Now, that's getting a little bit easier to do with today's technology. The internet, as much of a great tool that it is, it drains us of our free will, our creativity, and our imagination, and it makes us reactionary. It sends out signals and images to us, and we are bought with those images, and we're told what to think because we're cyborgs. We are attached to our smartphones, we're attached to our tablets and to our laptops and computers, and we can't do without them. Our schedules are on there, our emails are on there, our voicemails are on there, 
and we're constantly attached, we're constantly plugged in, and we're constantly being told what to think. Now, when I was growing up, I was on the cusp between analog and digital. And um, so I was reading magazines when I was a kid. So you would, you don't see this much anymore. You do see little sections of magazine stands in a store, but there used to be huge displays and even, even stores that were dedicated to magazines and newspapers all over the place. And when I was about mm, 12, 13 years old, I was reading Seventeen Magazine. Now there was an ad in Seventeen Magazine that um, really struck my sensitive growing mind. And it was an ad for shoes. But here was the image. I'm going to take you there. Dark alley. Garbage strewn all over the floor. Trash cans, graffiti on the wall. And in the main trash can where the spotlight was, there were women's legs sticking up out of it. So a woman had been apparently thrown down into the trash can head first and her legs were sticking out, but the feet had a beautiful pair of red leather shoes. And that was the ad. So what's the message to a 13-year-old? You may be trash, but at least your shoes look good. And worse, because it was such a violent image. Uh, that was one ad that appalled me at the time and appalls me even more because I can't get rid of that image. It's stuck in my head. It will never go away. It's like having a dirt spot that just never comes out of your clothing. Like Lady Macbeth saying, out, out, damn spot, I can't get rid of that image. And another one, um, it was in another magazine, also geared toward teenagers, and young women. And this one was for vodka. And the vodka bottle itself, when it was clear, but if you look through the logo, there was actually an image of a skull and crossbones. If you look really close, you could see it. And then, um, so that's subliminal, subliminal marketing. And in the background, um, it was in a bathroom, so this bottle is, is sitting on some sort of stand or dresser type thing. And in the background is the tub with the curtains drawn. And the curtains are sheer so you can see through them. And you see a, the silhouettes of a man and a woman embracing. But the man, one of the arms of the man is sticking out, grabbing for the bottle. And this is the image that they're selling to young kids. And again, that's an image that has not left my head. And you have to think about what that does to a young person whose prefrontal cortex is not completely developed. And we're bombarded with these images constantly. And it's even more so than when I was a kid because now everyone's plugged into the internet where this stuff is all over the place. Now, George Carlin said, again, government, want, government wants you, wants, I'll start over again. 
Government want to tell you things you can't say because they're against the law. Or you can't say this because it's against a regulation. Or here's something you can't say because it's a secret. You can't tell him that because he's not cleared to know that. Government wants to control information and control language because that's the way you control thought. And basically, that's the game they're in. Now, I might add to that, and they're winning. They're destroying us with bread and circuses because we buy it. We don't even learn from ancient Rome. Ancient Rome, who left so many records for us of what happened there, and we can't learn from it. Bread and circuses will destroy us. And we keep buying it. And they, in turn, buy us. But there is hope here. We can be better because we, we realize what's going on. So we can be better. We can love this world for what it can become. We can love others for the people they have the potential to be. You can love yourself for the man or the woman of whom you dream. We should and we must embrace each other's differences because differences are there to learn from and they're there to keep us in check. They're not our enemy. So um, lately there's been these news reports of UFOs and I'm going to talk about UFOs more probably next week. But anyway... Um, there's been these official reports coming out of the Pentagon and the Defense Department about official sightings from the military where they either videotaped or just had an eyewitness um, account of seeing UFOs. So they're not necessarily saying that these spacecraft are being driven by space aliens, but they don't know where these come from. And so they're watching them. But they released these reports, reports that were classified for decades, um, and even new news, uh, people seeing them just in the last couple years. And um, now they're talking about it. Now it's not being dismissed. Now they're actually saying, yeah, we've, we've got, there's something to this. Now, what I imagine that if, if, it is visitors from another planet. I take that as a message like, hey, humanity, look what you can do if you don't kill each other. You know, we came from five light years away, and this is what we did with our education. This is what we do with our technology. This is what we do with our society. You can do better, and you should do better, or else you're going to kill yourselves. You know, I think that's a message maybe that we should be taking from these UFOs. And we can certainly take it from COVID. COVID stopped us all in our tracks for the last year and held a mirror up to our face. Hey, humanity, decide what you want to be now. We're at, um, I think, a crossroads. I think we're at... Um, yeah, I guess that's the best way to, to put it. We're at a crossroads and we can take one way or the other. 
and we have to make that decision now. So um, I like what Buckminster Fuller said about this. Um, he is an author, designer, inventor, etc. He said, it is now, now, highly feasible to take care of everybody on earth at a higher standard of living than any have ever known. It is no longer, or it no longer has to be you or me. Selfish, selfishness is unnecessary. War is obsolete. It is a matter of converting our high technology from weaponry to livingry. I'll say that again. It is a matter of converting our high technology from weaponry to livingry. And we really need to um, focus on that because we're, we're coming, um, and it's actually even here, AI, artificial intelligence. Now that, that can be heaven or hell on earth when AI is, is as um, accessible as some of this other technology that we have at, at our hands. Um, it's really time to break out the Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. It's time to re-examine Siddhartha. It's time to read the New Testament because going forward, our philosophy is going to drive what we do with technology. And we could end up killing ourselves or having a new renaissance. So philosophy, embracing this new philosophy what is philosophy? It is love of wisdom. So teach your children and yourself to question and to have critical but respectful discussions to argue rationally and not reactively. And I would add, teach ourselves and our children to learn how to die in order to learn how to live now, I don't mean physical death necessarily, but what I do mean is every day at the end of the day, go into self-introspection and following the self-introspection comes self-emptying. So what can you do without tomorrow that encumbered you today? Put that to death. So you go to sleep, that's your little death as they call it, and you rise again tomorrow and free yourself of at least one psychic wound or mental bondage. Just one, and it's really hard to do. So you have to practice this every single day. You can't drop it. We are too adjusted, I think, to that which drains us of creativity, imagination, self-confidence, empathy, and love. Because that's what we're taught. That's what the machines around us teach us. And think of the men behind the curtain. That's what they want us to think. Don't teach your children what to think. Teach them how to think. We are often prisoners of the prison within. But we have to realize the door is open. And we need to run out of that prison when we're ready. But until then, we should sit with each other, hands around each other's shoulders, because we all know what it is to struggle. Some have different struggles, some have worse struggles, but we all understand heartbreak and um, 
being contrite. And that's where we find common ground. And so I'm going to end today's episode with bedtime stories from the acoustic bookshelf. And I will be reading from Songs of Innocence by William Blake, the poem, The Chimney Sweeper. When my mother died, I was very young, and my father sold me, while yet my tongue could scarcely cry, weep, 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 so your chimneys I sweep, and in soot I sleep. There's little Tom Dacre who cried when his head, that curled like a lamb's back, was shaved, so I said, hush, Tom, never mind it. For when your head's bare, you know that the suit cannot spoil your white hair. And so he was quiet, and that very night, as Tom was asleeping, he had such a sight that thousands of sweepers, Dick, Joe, Ned, and Jack, were all of them locked up in coffins of black. And by came an angel who had a bright key, and he opened the coffins and set them all free. Then down a green plain, leaping, laughing they run, and wash in a river, and shine in the sun. Then naked and white, all their bags left behind, they rise upon clouds and sport in the wind. And the angel said to Tom, if he'd be a good boy, he'd have God for his father and never want for joy. And so Tom awoke and we rose in the dark and got with our bags and our brushes to work. Though the morning was cold, Tom was happy and free and warm. So if you do, so if all do their duty, they need not fear harm. So I dedicate that to the children of the world and the children within us all. You are a divine child of the eternities floating around on a beautiful and glorious planet. Life is a gift. Embrace all of its lightness and darkness. Laugh together while it's light and hold each other's hands while it's dark. It's very early morning and it's still dark in my room. And the shadows are encroaching me, creating, even though it is the dawn, it's creating a nightscape in my house. And my nightscape has so much more to teach me. So, until next week, buona notte.